So Father, we come to your word and we ask that you would use us to remind us of the living hope that we have in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, show us once again who we are in light of who you are. Father, remind us who we were. Remind us of who we were apart from you. Remind us that we needed a Savior and that you and your grace and your mercy and your goodness and your kindness, you sent us that Savior. And you gave us your Son, Jesus. So Father, show him to us once again in your word today. Father, as we hear this message of the gospel, once again, many of us, for the thousandth time, Lord, never let us get to the place where we are no longer wowed by your grace and your mercy and your love. Guard our hearts against cold formality and warm us again by the fire of your good news today. So, Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would use it to edify your church and glorify your name. Sanctify us in truth because your word is truth. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, as you find your seats this morning, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll be looking together at verses 1 through 11 this morning. Uh, So good to see all of you this week. I want to say a special thank you to Dave and to Alex uh, for sharing the word with you uh, over the last couple of Sundays. I want to welcome those of you who are online together this morning as well. And if we've not had a chance to meet, my name's Taylor. I serve here at Cross as lead pastor. And uh, today we are kicking off a short message series, three weeks, called Gospel Family Kingdom, where we are looking at the values that serve as the foundation of Cross Community Church. So we'll be looking today and the next two Sundays a few different passages of Scripture that lay the values that we believe are not only the important foundational values of our local church, but of any local church. Um, A few weeks ago, we were able to gather here together on a Sunday night for what we called Cross Family Meeting, and it was an incredible night just to celebrate uh, the Lord's faithfulness to us as a church family. Uh, We are here at the end of 2021, wrapping up our fifth full year of public ministry together as a church, which is a really important milestone for a new church plant. So that night we celebrated the Lord's faithfulness to us in the last five years. We talked about really where we are as a church family now. And then we also cast some vision for where we believe the Lord is leading us next. And so this message series is going to be an opportunity to do much of the same, especially for those of you who were not there that night or those of you who heard some new things that night. We'll be able to expand on those uh, today and in the next two weeks ahead. And so today we are going to be looking at the first and most important value that we embrace as a church, which is the message of the gospel. No, it's hard to believe that five years ago this November, uh, the 40 or so adults who were part of the core team that was helping launch Cross Community, we were just gathering together once a week or every other week just as we could, preparing for our first public worship gathering that January. And very frequently, you know, that year we answered the question, why Cross Community Church? You know, you couldn't name the church anything under the sun. Cross doesn't really have a ton of creativity to it. It you know, feels kind of bland and, and, and maybe a little bit mundane. You know, couldn't we have done something a little bit more engaging, a little bit more creative? But there were so, some deep-held convictions that we embraced uh, as a small group of, of believers who were seeking uh, to do the work that the Lord had called us to do here in Beaufort that we wanted to make sure we never lost sight of. And so if I could just state it plainly at the very beginning of of this message this morning, before we dive into 1 Corinthians 15, it's that we are cross because we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We embrace above all else the good news of who Jesus Christ is and all of its implications for our lives both in the here and now and in the eternity to come. We could have chosen any name that we wanted to choose and yet we chose this name cross because we wanted to make sure that what remained at the forefront of our vision regardless of how our community changes, regardless of how our nation changes, regardless of how our world changes, that what will be preeminent in the life of this congregation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, we live in this really weird age of Christian consumerism, particularly here in the Bible Belt South, where churches unfortunately tend to be driven more by the demands of consumers than by the commands of Jesus Christ. And we wanted to make sure that in our name, in our DNA, and everything that we were, we kept at the forefront the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We had a very simple prayer, a very simple conviction that we laid before the Lord as a group of 40, 50 adults five years ago. We went before the Lord and we said this, either your gospel is enough to build your church or it's not. And praise God, church, five years ago we look back and we say, it has absolutely been enough. It has been more than enough. And the gospel is not just the message that serves as the foundation of the church. The gospel is the message that saves us. It's the message that sustains us as followers of Jesus Christ. It's the message that sends us out into the world. And it's the message we have been given to proclaim as we are sent out into the world. So if you're following along in your notes this morning, what we're going to see as we open up 1 Corinthians 15 is that the message of the gospel must I mean, this is must with a capital M. The message of the gospel must be preeminent in the life of the church because the gospel alone, lots of exclusive language this morning, has the power to make us more like Christ as he displays his goodness and grace through those he has saved. As a church family, we we stand here unapologetically this morning and we tell you the gospel of Jesus Christ is our everything. It's what serves as the foundation of this community, but we believe is the foundation that the Lord's going to continue to build upon in the years ahead. So over the next couple of weeks, while we will look at uh, some new ministry initiatives, both inside our walls and outside our walls, this morning what I want to talk about as we come to the end of, of our fifth full year of ministry is what's not going to change, Lord willing, in the year ahead. And what's not going to change is that we are going to keep central and above all else the good news of Jesus. Now, I want to, I want to tag a little bit of a warning before uh, we tap into 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. Because for those of us who have been following Jesus for a minute, we're going to hear some very familiar things today. And, and, and we're going to get into this passage and we're going to look at some of these basic foundational truths. And those of us who grew up and graduated from Sunday school and got all the gold stars, we're going to, in here in a few moments, maybe sense some, uh, uh, some feeling of, hey, tell me something I don't know. But I, I just want to warn you this morning. Friend, if you are hearing even for the millionth time the gospel of Jesus Christ and your response is, tell me something I don't know, then you don't know. Like, if you have gotten over what Jesus has done for you, then you probably never got it in the first place. And so I want us to guard against any sense of arrogance of, hey, I've already gotten this figured out and I don't need this anymore because if we are to remain and continue moving forward as a community in the next five years and 50 years and five centuries, if the Lord tarries in his coming, we're going to have to remain centered on this gospel and it is the message that we can absolutely never get over. So 1 Corinthians 15, let's read together beginning with verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul writes here to the church in Corinth, now I would remind you. So again, if you're a, an underline, circle things in your Bible type person, I would encourage you, underline, circle that word, remind. We saw this word a few weeks ago. I'll come back to that in just a moment. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, 
which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So we see first this morning from 1 Corinthians 15 that the continual proclamation of the gospel progressively sanctifies those who are saved. The continued, ongoing proclamation of the gospel sanctifies us, is making us holy progressively as those who have become followers of Jesus Christ. Verse 1, Paul says, now I would remind you. We saw this word a few weeks ago in Titus 3. Why does Paul need to use words like remind? Because you and I are prone to forget. We, we saw just a few weeks ago, we tend to suffer from this really weird gospel amnesia where it's, it's like we hear it and then by Monday we've forgotten it. But we're so easily carried away by the concerns of this world. And so Paul is writing to remind them of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, we're diving into 1 Corinthians 15 here, just kind of at the end of the letter. We've not been doing this verse by verse the way that we uh, typically might do with a whole book of the Bible. So I want to give us just a, a little bit of context why it is that Paul is focusing on this. You know, the church in Corinth, there was great confusion about the content of the gospel, particularly in regards to the resurrection of the dead. The pagan culture of the Greco-Roman world would have been incensed by the idea that a physical body could be resurrected, and this thinking, unfortunately, uh, had even influenced the beliefs and convictions of the church. And so Paul is writing to remind them of sound doctrine, of good theology, to, to show them, hey, you have in many ways been infected by the thinking of a secular culture. And it was influencing the most fundamental foundational truth that the church should uphold, which is the message of the gospel. And so he's calling them back to sound doctrine. He's calling them back to good theology. And, and listen, th this remains true for us today. We, we are, can be so guilty of just chasing every cultural, political rabbit hole that we just forget the content of the gospel. We forget who we are in Christ. We spend one day in here, six days out there, and it's easy for even our most basic foundational beliefs to be infected with the thinking of a lost and dying world. And so even we as followers of Jesus, we need to be continually reminded of the gospel. It's my favorite line from any hymn of all time when we sing the words, To come thou fount of every blessing. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Anybody else sing those words and you're like, oh yeah. Like, that's me. Like, I'm, I'm prone to wonder. I feel it. I, I need to pray, Lord, here is my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Even as believers in Jesus Christ, we're prone to wonder. So as followers of Christ, we're prone to forget the gospel and a lost and dying world that doesn't know the gospel. And so that's why Paul is saying that he's writing to remind them of the gospel. And then four, uh, Paul lays out four distinct clauses that describe the content of the good news. He describes the good news as the message, first, that I preach to you, second, which you received, third, in which you stand, and fourth, by which you are being saved. And so when he says that the gospel is a message that was preached, or verse three, we'll see the word delivered, we learn right away that the message of the gospel is not prescriptive, it's descriptive. And listen, church, this is what sets Christianity apart from every other religious system. You ask, what makes Jesus different? Every other religious system, it's prescriptive. It tells you, these are the things that you can do so that hopefully one day you will be saved. Hey, follow these rules, do these things, accomplish these tasks, and maybe in the end, if you've done enough, you'll inherit eternal life. And that, that is not the message of the gospel. That is not the message of Jesus Christ. It's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. It's an announcement. It's news. 
It doesn't tell us these are the things you can do to earn your salvation. It tells us this is what Jesus Christ has accomplished for you so that you can be saved. It's news. It's an announcement. And it's not a method that we prescribe. It's a message we proclaim. This is what sets Jesus apart from everything else. The gospel is a message that's preached and delivered. Second, Paul says it's a message which is received. He said, that which I preached and you received. And so this speaks to the dual responsibility we have as followers of Christ. And, and all who would hear the message of the gospel, not just to preach it and not just to share it, but also be faithful to receive it. He says the gospel is the message third in which you stand. So the gospel is our firm foundation. It is our confidence. It is our hope. And we come into the presence of a holy God. And he says fourth that the gospel is the message by which you are being saved. Now, this is a really interesting language that that Paul uses here because it it indicates to us that that while salvation, yes, is a moment, there is your justification, Romans chapter 8, that the Lord has, has ordained in eternity past. When we are justified before Christ, it means when you profess faith in Jesus, you are confident, you can be confident, if you were to die and meet that maker in your moment, your, your security before him is sure and strong. And yet, sal- uh, salvation is also spoken of in Scripture as, a, as a process. Yes, we have been saved, we have been justified, but we are also being progressively sanctified. As Wayne Grudem, in his uh, popular work on systematic theology, has defined sanctification as a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and more like Christ in our actual lives. Paul fleshes this out a little bit more in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 and 18. He says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And he says, verse 18, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Think of salvation as a spirit-driven metamorphosis with past, present, and future implications. So justification tells us that we have been saved. When you confess your sins, repent of your sins, when you put your faith in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the debt of your sin has been canceled by him. It means we have been justified. We can come into the presence of the holy judge and just judge of the universe and be confident that we are secure in him. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. But then there's also sanctification. This is progressive. It tells us we are being saved day by day. We are being continually molded and formed into the image of Jesus Christ. As Paul said, from one degree of glory to the next. And then glorification, third, shows us that we will be saved. So we have the confidence that one day we will stand before him and see him face to face because we have been justified. And the evidence that we have been justified is that we are being sanctified. We, we are being continually molded and formed progressively into the image of Christ. Uh, my birthday was a couple of weeks ago, and this is how I know that my wife loves me. So uh, those of you guys that know me, a lifelong Star Wars nerd through and through. And, um, and, and so I've, I've really had a, a really good decade here because there's been so much new that has come out. And um, favorite Star Wars character of all time is Boba Fett. So we're walking through, it was like Target or Walmart or something a few uh, weeks ago with our boys looking in the toy aisle. Um, but I happen to notice in the Lego section, there are now Legos for adults, which is awesome, Right. It says it right there in the box, 18 and older, so don't judge me on this, is, is I'm looking at, I'm like, there's this Lego Star Wars Boba Fett helmet. I'm like, that is absolutely amazing. And guys, Emily bought it for me for my birthday. 
I was absolutely geeking out. And so um, I, I had taken a couple days off. Our boys were on fall break. And so uh, for my birthday that morning, man, she took the boys upstairs. They're hanging out upstairs watching a movie. And for like two and a half hours, I played Legos. And it was awesome. 615 pieces. 615 pieces. And so man, I just got to sit there and just, just intricately knit Boba Fett together. It, it was amazing. And so once I was finished, you know, a couple hours later, he was exalted to the highest place on my bookshelf so my boys can't mess with it. And, and I can now see Boba Fett face to face. It's incredible. And, and, and so, you know, th- this is in a sense kind of the, the nature of our salvation. Like, like, it's all there in the box when you buy it, right? Like, like all the pieces are there in the box. It's not yet pieced together, but inside that box, there is a Boba Fett helmet. And then, and then what takes place is then this process uh, of me separating all those pieces and then just slowly putting them together. And then sometimes I would get ahead of myself. Feel like, hey, I know what I'm doing here. And I'd skip the direction. But remember, these are adult Legos. They're harder. And so I'd get a few steps ahead and say, oh, mess that up. I got to go back and fix it. And then eventually it's brought to its completion. And this is the nature of our salvation. When you are justified, it's all there. It's all there, but then progressively continuing, the Lord is, is piecing you together from one degree of glory to the next. You're being made more and more like Jesus Christ. And sometimes we, unfortunately, in our sin, we deviate from that plan. And so what the, what's the Lord have to do? He has to strip some things away, and then he has to put the right pieces back in place. But church, we have the confidence one day we will stand before him and we will see him face to face. Is anybody else looking forward to that day? Like this Jesus that we pray to, this Jesus that we sing about, this Jesus that we, we, we see in this word, one day we're going to see him. Our faith is going to become sight. He's going to finish this process and sin is going to be no more and death is going to be no more and hell will be totally overcome completely. It's all been overcome by the power of Jesus Christ and those of us who have our faith in him will be exalted and be able to stand confidently in his presence. So the evidence that this is happening, Paul says, is that our, our faith is not in vain, is that we're holding fast to the word. So it's, it, it's like the chrysalis of a butterfly that's hanging on a tree. You and I form in the chrysalis of the word as we cling to the tree who is Jesus Christ. Verses 3 through 7, Paul goes on to say, For I delivered to you as of first importance. So again, I would just encourage you, underline, highlight, circle those words. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And again, here, he's just, the, the content of the gospel, he's just going to break it down Barney style for us. This is so simple for us. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he appoint, uh, appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. And then the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 other brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 8 as well. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So second, this morning we see that the simple message of the gospel is the non-negotiable first priority of the church. And again, I want to emphasize this words, non-negotiable. Paul says in verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance. Everybody say first importance. So again, it's, it's not that other things don't matter. Now understand this. Let's, let's be careful here. It's not that other things, other subjects, it's not that they don't matter. Like if you read 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you'll find that these books are loaded. I mean, for followers of Christ with doctrinal, theological, relational, ethical, and moral implications. 
I mean, First and Second Corinthians, just a base sampling, you see here today the doctrine of resurrection and then uh, sanctification. We see practical instruction for things like communion. We see uh, the practice uh, and the role of the spiritual gifts in the life of the church. Ethically, the books of First and Corinthians address things like idolatry, sexual immorality, our responsibility to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, and to a lost and dying world. And so again, it's, it's not that other ethical and doctrinal issues don't matter, but what we see from language like first importance is, is that some things matter a little bit more, and the message of the gospel in particular is what matters the most. This is the message of first importance. And just so there's no confusion on what that message is, Paul lays it out for us in plain language. The message of the good news. Jesus Christ has died for our sins. He was buried and raised again on the third day. He appeared to 500. He appeared to James. He appeared to the apostles. He appeared to Peter. And then Paul says, last of all, he appeared to me. And this is important for us to see because, church, we have to understand that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that this is not some sort of mythical legend. Like, this is not an Avengers movie. Okay, this is a real event that took place in the time and space of human history. It's, it's not a metaphor. It's, it, this is a real reality, something that actually took place, the most defining single event in all of human history. And, and Paul says this has to be primary. That's why he goes on later in chapter 15. He says, listen, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is in vain. This is one of the things I love about the Bible is that it just has this ongoing raw honesty. This is Paul admitting just a few verses later in chapter 15, listen, if Jesus is still dead, then this is a waste of time and we're a bunch of frauds. And that remains true for us today. The single most important question that really sets the trajectory of everything else when it comes to the authenticity and validity of Christianity is, has Christ raised from the dead? And if he has, I mean, we we take the words of guys like C.S. Lewis and many others. Listen, if Christ has not been raised, then he needs to be rejected as a fraud. But if Jesus Christ has come back from the grave, you and I have no other choice but to fall on our knees and to worship him as Lord. Tim Keller has said that if if Christ has not been raised, then nothing else matters. And if he has been raised, then everything matters. We better listen to this man, Jesus. We have to reckon with this question for ourselves. Do I truly believe that Jesus overcame the grave? This is the single most defining important message that we, we have to be clear on as followers of, of, of Christ, that this is not a message where we can afford confusion. Mark Dever is the senior pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He said a couple of years ago, a church confused about the gospel is worse than worthless. It is a blocked emergency exit, and it is an elevator to hell. We cannot afford to lack clarity on the content of the good news. It has to be the non-negotiable priority in the life of the church. This is why Paul says, Galatians 6.14, he says, but far be it from me to boast in anything except. So other boasting, bad, this type of boasting, good. Far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Why cross community church? Because the cross is the only thing in which we boast in. This is what has to remain central and not peripheral. This is what has to have laser-sighted focus and and vision for us as as followers of Jesus Christ and as a congregation. Romans 1, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. 
It's the power of God for salvation. So listen, church, if the gospel is the message of first importance, if that is the message, the only exclusive message that's the power of God for salvation, if that's the message that's going to sustain the church and send the church and carry the church, if it's that message, you had better believe Satan is going to do everything in his power to get us confused about the gospel and distracted from the gospel. Man, we've seen this unfold over the last 18 months in particular. Like, it, it's, it's maddening. Why is it that Protestant evangelical Christians in particular, we, we seem to be so ridiculously gullible. Like, we tend to be the first ones in line chasing down every conspiracy theory, every political debate, every single culture war. Why does this happen? Because we have lost the gospel as our priority. There is no message that is more important than the message of the gospel, regardless of what's happening in our community, in our world, in our culture. It is high time for the church to stop letting the world dictate its message. Our agenda isn't Fox News, it's not CNN, it's the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the non-negotiable first priority of the church, and when we lose that message, we become worse than worthless. We have what this world needs. So far be it from us to boast in anything other than the message that saves and sanctifies and delivers and seals us for all time in Christ. We can't lose the priority of the gospel. Verses 8 and 9, Paul then leads into uh, more of his own personal testimony. He says this is what Christ has done and this is how it's impacted him. He says, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Verse 9, he says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. You remember who Paul was before he was saved? When he was Saul of Tarsus? How was he, he was at the, the forefront, he was the primary driving force behind the effort to persecute and shut down the church. He says, as, as one untimely born, you know, I think in Paul's mind as he's writing this, like, he's like, it, it makes sense that the Lord would appear to Peter. That was kind of his number one guy. It makes sense the Lord would appear to James. He was part of that inner circle. It makes sense he would appear to the, to the disciples. It makes sense that he would appear to these 500 others. But to me, to appear to me, I think in Paul's mind, this makes no sense at all. It, it makes sense that Jesus would make himself known to people who were following him and who were worshiping him, but someone who was persecuting him. Paul says, this one untimely born, he appeared to me. I'm an apostle, but I'm the least of the apostles. And and so what Paul shows us here at third is that the fullness of Christ in the gospel is available to the very worst of sinners. Listen, this is Paul's way, church, of saying, look, if he can save me, he can save anybody. I used to persecute the church. And still Jesus chased me down and said that I was his. And you know, it's, it's amazing if you study the trajectory of Paul's life. It's really interesting how he describes himself through the course of his ministry. Remember, when, when Paul first became a believer, when he was first saved, there were a lot of people who doubted if it was legit. Like, there were a lot of people who really doubted the legitimacy of his conversion. They're like, somebody would be like, hey, Paul's a believer now. And everybody's like, oh, ha, 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 good joke. Like, the Paul who's been trying to kill us all? And, and people be like, no, for real. Like, he, he met Christ, and his life has been transformed. And, and Paul kind of had to defend his ministry. He's like, no, no, I, I'm real. Like, I, I'm, I'm an apostle. I should be counted among the apostles. But then the longer he followed Jesus, here he is a little bit later in his ministry. He says, but I'm really the least of the apostles. Because Jesus, you know, appeared to all them, and then he appeared to me, which I'm the least because I persecuted. And then if you get to the end of his life, 
He's writing his letter to Timothy. He doesn't say, I I should be counted among the apostles defending his ministry. He doesn't say, well, not in the least of the apostles. No, Paul says in the book of 1 Timothy, I'm the chief of sinners. The closer and closer and closer he got to Jesus, the more aware he became of his own sin. And the more grateful he became for what Christ had done for him. And church, Paul's testimony for, for us and his example for us shows us, listen, there's not a single one of us in this room that has out the reaches of God's grace and mercy. I, I know this is heavy and this can be difficult and this can be hard, but I want you just to consider this for a moment. What's the worst thing you've ever done? I mean, Jesus doesn't just equate sin with action. He equates it with desire. What's the worst thing you've ever done? What's the worst thing you've ever felt? What's the worst thing you've ever wanted? It's the worst thing you've ever imagined, the worst thing you've ever fantasized. Listen, Jesus Christ saw you in that moment, and he still, st- and he still said, that one belongs to me. Jesus didn't save us when he saw us at our best. He saved us when he saw us at our worst. And Paul's testimony for us shows us there's none of us in this room that has out the grace of God. This is good news over and over and over again. We have sinned and he has saved. And the good news is that he is way better at saving than you and I are at sinning. Amen? His grace is available. The fullness of Christ is available for those who call on his name to be saved. Listen, I don't care what's in your past. When you come to Jesus Christ, you don't get diet Jesus just because of your sin. The fullness of himself. I'm going to make some people mad. He's not a Pepsi Jesus. He's a Coke Jesus, okay? (laughs) Rabbit trail, if you flip Pepsi upside down, it spells is dead, okay? He's Coke Jesus. You get the fullness of him. Like, he doesn't reserve himself just because you've got some mistakes in your past. The, The fullness of Christ is available to all who call on his name to be saved. We can be, like Paul, the least of the apostles, the chief of sinners, and we still get the fullness of Jesus Christ. He closes this out, verses 10 and 11. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I I was the least of the apostles, chief of sinners, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this is what he goes on to say. I I love this. Now, we're going to read part of this, and this is going to sound kind of arrogant on Paul's part for a second, but we'll, we'll finish the whole sentence. He says, and his grace toward me was not in vain. This is Paul saying, Jesus did not waste his grace on me. He has not wasted that on me. He says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. So all these people he just mentioned, like, like all the apostles and Peter and James, the 500, he's like, I outworked everybody. Like, wow, thanks, humility there, Paul. But, but then there is the humility. He says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. So forth, we see this morning that the grace of the gospel empowers us to give all of ourselves for Christ. Paul says he's the least of the apostles, the worst of sinners, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and he did not waste one ounce of grace on me. I've given all of myself. And and man, I just love the, the humble confidence that marks the testimony of the apostle Paul. So he's got the confidence to stand up and say, I outworked all you clowns. I gave more. Whatever you gave, I gave more. Whatever you sacrificed, I sacrificed more. I've worked harder than all of them, but then it's the humility. But it wasn't me working. It was Christ working within me. He fleshes this out a little bit more. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul, Paul this is his testimony. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's not even me living anymore. It's, it's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives within me. In the life I live in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God 
Like, th- this is what our goal is, church, as followers of Christ, is to get to the point where we're saying, like, hey, it's, it's no longer Taylor living. It's not even me living anymore. Christ has me completely. I have given all of myself to him because he has given all of himself for me. And I love this because it reminds us that the message of the gospel is not just about what we have been saved from. It's about what we've been saved for. Like the gospel's not just your get out of hell free card. Dave reminded us a couple of weeks ago, the words of Robbie Gallaty, that, that one of the reasons why the gospel came to us is because it was going to somebody else. Listen, you and I, as as Paul describes the nature of this preaching and receiving relationship, you and I only know Jesus because someone else was faithful to share Jesus. Because someone else shared the good news. Because someone else preached the message of the gospel. And that's what's been entrusted to us. That's why we declare Psalm 45, 17 when we leave every single week. It's a statement of our intent to cause his name to be remembered. That's what's been entrusted to us. The good news came to us because it needs also to get to someone else. And Paul says, I threw my life entirely into this. He didn't waste his grace on me. God's grace toward me was not in vain. Which is why he says in verse 11 that whether it's him or someone else, he says that's the message we preach and that's the message you believe. That's what's been entrusted to the church. That is the priority uh, of the church. And so again, as we we shift gears here and start to close this morning, uh, I'm going to give us four challenges here in just a moment. Again, uh, next week and the week after, we're going to look a lot more as we we talk about how these values shape our church. Um, Next week, week after, we're going to look a lot more about some some new things, some exciting initiatives that are getting off the ground, both internally in our church family and and outside of our walls, some new ministry partnerships that we're forming. But again, today, I want to emphasize... Uh, the, the importance of, again, not just, just tacking on new things, but what we also want to maintain a lot. And, and what we need to maintain most is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And today, before we talk about the next two weeks, some things that are going to change, let's talk about the one thing that's not going to change. And what's not going to change is that cross-community church will remain cross-community church. We will boast in nothing except the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will cling, regardless of what's happening politically, culturally, anywhere in the world or in our country or anywhere else, regardless of what's happening, we're going to keep this as the preeminent message. This is the single exclusive message of first importance. It's not that other things don't matter. It's that some things matter more, and the gospel is the message that matters most. And so I want to give us four challenges this morning of, of, of some things that should never change. That these weren't just first five years things. These need to be forever things in the life of our church family. First challenge is this, that we would keep the main thing, which is the message of the gospel, the main thing. Keep the main thing, the main thing. And Paul lays out a very basic doctrinal statement for us in verses three through seven. I want you to repeat these three very simple statements after me. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let's do it one more time. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. That's good theology. You are equipped with your personal story, like Paul's personal story, and that basic foundation, you are equipped with everything you need to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Because it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. You're just going to announce what's already been done and to invite others into what has been done for you and for everyone who would call on his name and be saved. 
So we keep the main thing the main thing. We keep the message of the gospel central, the, the simplicity of the good news. There is a God who created us to be in relationship with him, but our sins have separated us from him. Uh, the bad news is our sins cannot be removed by any amount of good deeds. That's every other religious system. Good news is that Jesus paid the price for our sins so we can turn from our sins, confess and repent, call in his name and be saved. But it's not just about what we're saved from, it's what we're saved for. What we're empowered and dwelt by the fullness of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, and then we are called to throw ourselves wholeheartedly into his mission, giving the best that we can while recognizing it's not us doing it, it's Christ within us, just to keep us humble. This is the good news. This is the message that has to remain central. And so listen, let, let's just go ahead and, and lay that down today. Like, that's not going to change. We are going to continue to preach the gospel. We're going to continue to sing the gospel. We're going to continue to pray the gospel. As we gather together, we will remember the gospel when we come to the table. Everything that we do as a church family has to remain centered on the message of the gospel. And that same thread, uh, same a second challenge, embrace simplicity. So again, we, we, we keep the main thing the main thing. We embrace simplicity. We remember the simplicity and the goodness of the gospel. Third, uh, remember who you were apart from Christ. Don't forget your story. Again, one of the reasons why I think 21st century American context, we feel so free, man, to just unload on people when they disappoint us is that we forget who we were apart from Jesus. We forget the treatment that we received when we were sinners and rebels against a holy God. Remember who you were apart from Christ. Listen, apart from the intervening grace and mercy of God in our lives, every single one of us, you, me, all of us, we were going to be Paul or worse. Many of us, again, I, I think sometimes we just take our salvation for granted. You know, it's kind of, well, you know, I was born into a Christian home, and, you know, I don't really remember a time that I didn't know anything about Jesus, and, you know, I mostly stayed out of trouble, and, 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 and you were not born mostly good. You were born, Ephesians 2, completely dead. And apart from the intervening grace and mercy of God through his son Jesus Christ that was ordained in eternity past, you and I were on a one-way fixed destination to eternal hell and judgment under his wrath. And he saved us. He called our name. Never forget who you were apart from Christ. Never forget who you were before Jesus. Never forget what it cost the Lord to save you. What the Father had to give up so that we could be saved. He gave us, he could not give us more than he gave us when he gave us Jesus. That was the highest price he could meet. And we're offered all of this in Jesus Christ. Fourth, uh, just to borrow from the title of one of the most influential Christian books of the last quarter century, uh, book by John Piper, Don't Waste Your Life. Paul makes the de declaration, God's grace toward me was not in vain. His grace toward me was not in vain. L listen, and, and I want to talk, especially here, I think like 25 and under crowds, so, so high school, middle school students in the room. Listen, it has never been easier in human history for you to throw your life away on completely pointless things. I mean, the world that is presented to us through uh, constant media-driven, uh, social media-type culture, that these are not evil things. Don't hear me saying that we've got to throw them completely out the door. But man, in terms of, of the materialism of our culture, in terms of the distraction of our culture, it has never been easier in human history to throw your life away on completely pointless things. And so it is my desire, not just for my life, your life, or our whole congregation, 
in our hearts and in our homes and, and right here together as a body of believers that we would resolve we will not waste our lives. We will be set on fire by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His grace toward me will not be in vain. I will not waste. And I, I just want to ask you this morning, how are you spending the life that Jesus purchased at the cost of his own blood? How are you spending what was purchased for you? That this one single blip on the radar of an existence and then eternity. How are we spending this? What if we collectively resolved as, as one unified body of believers? No, no, no. Cross community church, God's grace towards us isn't going to be in vain. We're not going to waste what he gives us. We're not going to waste the opportunities he, he gives us. We're not going to throw our lives away in frivolous, pointless pursuits. We're not going to be, be carried away by the constant distraction and, and pull of this world. No, no, no. We're we going to center on the gospel. And I wanted to read this excerpt from Don't Waste Your Life. I read these words when I was 18. They, they turned my life upside down at the time. And I want us just to, to, to center and settle on this together this morning. Piper writes here, You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world, but you do have to know the few great things that matter and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the end of the earth and roll on for centuries and into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ or high EQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches. You don't have to come from a fine family or a fine school. You just have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things and be set on fire by them. It's by the grace of God that we are what we are. What if we resolve today that the Lord's grace towards us won't be in vain? What if we resolve today we will not waste our lives? How are you spending what Jesus purchased? Let's resolve in our hearts that we'll give all of ourselves for him. So we just bow your heads with me as we close our time together this morning. We come to the table for communion to remember the gospel. We do this weekly because we need to be continually reminded of the gospel. A lost world doesn't know it and we're prone to forget it or at least lose its significance. And so this morning, man, I, I would just encourage you as you're, you're praying before the Lord just to, to lay that at his feet. Maybe, maybe the message of the gospel just feels a little bit cold to you right now. Maybe you do need to be, as, as I prayed earlier, you need to be warmed by the fires of the good news. Have a heart and a life that is set on fire by his word for his glory so that we can give all of ourselves to him. And so as we, we prepare to come to the table this morning, why don't we just, just enter into a moment here of, of confession of sin? Let's just ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate in our hearts and minds and lives everything that is contrary to him, against God's word, out of step with what it means to be a follower of Jesus, whatever actions, words, behaviors, attitudes, habits, what's clinging to you that's keeping you from Jesus. Let's confess that sin and lay that at his feet this morning. First John 1 John 1.9 reminds us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful. He's just. 
He will forgive us of all sin, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So let's ask the Lord for a heart of true and genuine repentance. This is more than being remorseful for sin. This is more than feeling conviction over sin. This is more than being sorry for sin. This is asking the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts so that we would turn from our sin and cease our sin and lay hold of the perfect righteousness that's been available, made available to us in Jesus Christ. Let's ask the Lord for a heart of genuine repentance. So Father, we come to this table this morning to remember the broken body and shed blood of your son Jesus, to remember the good news, to see it visibly displayed. We thank you for the perfect life of your son Jesus who never sinned because we had sinned. We thank you that his body was broken and his blood was shed in our place, that he paid the penalty for our sins so that we in faith could call on his name and freely receive salvation. Oh, Father, never let us get over that truth. That simple truth of what you've done for us. So as we come to the table, be glorified as we sing, be glorified as we confess, as we repent, as we rejoice, as we thank you, as we remember. Let it all be a sweet fragrance and aroma to you today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen.